There's a lot of things about this music that I think is very noteworthy, if you'll excuse the pun. For one thing, it's written for the piano, which you may not have been able to tell just by listening to it. Uh, I remember the first time that I heard this piece performed live, it was uh, it was such a treat to hear the pianist touch the keys and have these sounds <laughs> emerge from the piano. And, and the audience is kind of looking at each other like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. It's written for the piano. It's actually a prepared piano. We're listening to Sonata Number no. 5 by John Cage, performed by Alec Karras on a wonderful disc of his sonatas and interludes for prepared piano. But it's also that uh, the piece features no harmony whatsoever, and that is a big hallmark of Cage's music in the early days, that he wanted to get away from typical ideas of music, Western development, that the music goes somewhere, that it has this structural development, and also, of course, harmony. Welcome to Relevant Tones. My name is Seth Bosted, and I'm featuring the music of John Cage on today's program because September 5th, 2012, will be the centenary of his birth, and we're going to be hearing an awful lot about Cage. Of course, 100 years, that hardly makes him a contemporary composer, but his music is uh, still very pervasive. His influence is still felt by so many composers that uh, we're definitely going to be hearing a lot about Cage. And so I um, definitely want to feature his music on Relevant Tones. The prepared piano pieces come from an early part of his career, mostly in the 40s when he's living in New York City and working with the Merce Cunningham Dance Company. He really wanted to uh, come up with some new sounds. There were a lot of limitations, a lot of funding limitations. So, you know, they had a a beat-up old piano in the theater, and that's pretty much what he had to use to write the music for the productions. So to get these new sounds that he was hearing, um, well, he wasn't always hearing them. He wanted to know what they would sound like himself. Um, What he would do is just put things inside the piano, erasers, screws, glass rods, anything that he could find. And uh, it it would create just wildly different sounds. You know, it can sound like a gamelan. It can sound like metal pots. It can sound like uh, all these wonderful different things. Let's return to this disc and listen to a little bit more. This is Alec Karras playing more from the Sonatas and Interludes for Prepared Piano by John Cage. Thank you. 
More music for Prepared Piano by John Cage from the Sonatas and Interludes performed by Alec Karras on piano. These prepared piano pieces were a huge step forward for Cage in that he's using new timbres. Um, he, he's created basically a new instrument and, and an instrument that has a, such a wide variety of new sounds. These scores are very meticulously detailed also. He, he really tells you exactly what he wants. So it's very composery in that respect. Um, he, he is very specific about the sounds that he wants and how you are to create those sounds. And this idea is, is what starts to break down later on now in Cage's career. He uh, becomes very in- interested in um, Eastern philosophy. He starts reading the I Ching and other works of Eastern philosophy, and he decides that he wants to remove the composer from the creative process, or he decides that it's more interesting to have the listener decide what to listen to and what to hear and to organize the sounds, or that every performance should be completely different. So he'll now start to not specify instruments. He will um, start to incorporate chance elements. And one of the ways that he does this with chance is uh, with the I Ching itself. If you don't know the I Ching, it's called the Book of Changes. It's an ancient text in China, and what it really is is a series of hexagrams, and each hexagram has some kind of interpretive fortune-telling meaning that, that reveals something about your life or about what might happen in the future. And uh, what you need to do is uh, derive a hexagram through chance. You can toss six coins. You can uh, you can throw what are called the yarrow sticks, which are these little bamboo sticks that land in a random fashion, and you can turn them into the hexagram. There are a lot of different ways to get this hexagram. Um, but what Cage did is he ascribes musical values to all of these things, and then he did use the I Ching yarrow sticks. A lot of times in a bookstore, if you buy the I Ching, it actually comes with the yarrow sticks. So he would just throw the sticks out and then ascribe musical values to the way that the sticks land. Let's listen to a little bit of this. This is a solo piano piece that he wrote called Music of Changes, Book One.
We just heard Music of Changes, book one, performed by pianist Joseph Kubera, a piece by John Cage that was derived from the I Ching, one of his first chance pieces. Uh, this would become a huge theme in later works by Cage, and he would come up with endlessly inventive ways to ensure that uh, that, that chance was injected into his uh, in, into the proceedings, so to speak. Um, he also would kind of, uh, in the way that Schoenberg systematized atonality, so that you couldn't have tonality. There's absolutely no way that one tone would be more important than another. I think that Cage systematized um, random elements, and so there's no way that that uh, he, he ensures that there's no way that any two performances of the same piece will sound the same. Which I think is a really fascinating idea. And speaking of which, we're going to play a piece now called Fontana Mix. It very much shows this idea of uh, ensuring chance, ensuring that no two performances will ever be the same. I'm going to read the instructions for the piece. It says, this is a composition indeterminate of its performance. There are 10 transparent sheets with points, 10 drawings having six differentiated curved lines, a graph having 100 units horizontally, 12 vertically, and a straight line, the last two on transparent material. A sheet with points is placed over a drawing with curves. Over these, the graph is placed, and the straight line is used to connect a point within the graph with one outside. Measurements horizontally on the top and bottom lines of the graph with respect to the straight line give a time bracket. Measurements vertically on the graph with respect to the intersections of the curved lines and the straight line specify actions to be made, where the curved lines represent different kinds of actions, and the 20 vertical units of the graph represent different degrees of these. Thus, sound sources, their mechanical alteration, changes of amplitude, frequency, overtone structure, the use of loops, special types of splicing, etc., may be determined. The use of this material is not limited to tape music, but may be used freely for instrumental, vocal, and theatrical purposes. Let's hear a little bit of this. Here's an excerpt of Fontana Mix by John Cage. <laughs> We just heard a little bit of Fontana Mix, a piece by John Cage that uh, incorporates chance. In fact, is uh, structured in such a way that chance has to happen. <laughs> that, that no two performances will ever be the same. I'm going to turn now to three other pieces of his in which, uh, really, you know, the, the inventiveness now of the composer is in ways of, of injecting chance into the pieces. It's not so much, um, isn't it clever how he developed that? Because the whole point, of course, is that Cage is, is removing himself from the process. So the inventiveness is uh, exactly in how he's injecting chance into the piece. He wrote a piece called Variations 3. In fact, he wrote a series of variations that all are along this line. In the variations, the performers also make their own parts. In Variations 3, they actually will, will uh, cut the paper up into varying size circles, and then they can interpret that how they, how they like. Uh, the, the larger circles could be louder dynamics. The, they could be longer tones. Um, it's really up to the performers. There's another piece that we can listen to a little bit of called 30 Pieces for Five Orchestras, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, none of the 30 pieces is more than 75 seconds. Each orchestra is conducted by a different conductor, and it's the first piece in which Cage used time brackets, in which the performers are instructed to play for a certain amount of time, um, but what they play is not entirely 
composed. It's uh, There's a lot of chance elements in that. And we're going to listen to 13 Harmonies, which is a really interesting piece. In 1976, Cage wrote a... Uh, a piece for the bicentennial and um, called Apartment House. And then there was another piece called Variations. Um, and uh, in 1979, he was asked to uh, combine these. And so he wrote the uh, 13 harmonies. And what he did is he selected 13 harmonies from the piece. And it's up to the performer what notes they want to use from those different harmonies. So let's have a listen now to kind of a drop the needle on all three of these. We'll hear a little bit of Variations 3 and then 30 pieces for five orchestras and then 13 harmonies. Sort kind of a random sampling of the uh, the John Cage chance years. <laughs> we heard a little bit of Variations Three, and then Thirty Pieces for Five Orchestras, and then Thirteen Harmonies. All pieces that are wildly different in the way that they inject chance into the performances, but um, all pieces that would never sound the same in any given performance. You're listening to Relevant Tones, a show featuring the music of contemporary composers. Today, I am talking about the centenary of the very influential composer John Cage. You can find out more about Relevant Tones on our website, relevanttones.com. And in fact, we've got a a really interesting video up there, uh, which is a 1960 appearance that Cage made on a game show called I've Got a Secret. 
And um, I, I really like the video uh, for many reasons, but um, not least because it shows the, the lighter side of Cage, so to speak. Um, you know, it's just his, his sense of fun. When we talk about his music or, or some of the things that he talked about, there's, there's a tendency to become very academic or, or sort of weighty and ponderous and... Um, and that just wasn't him at all. I think you know you need to listen to this music and know that there was a there was a wink in his eye. There was a there was a sense of fun and, and mischief, um, very much inherent in in the music of John Cage. And again, you can find that video on our website at relevanttones.com. So much of Cage's musical aesthetic comes from this insatiable search for new sounds. Uh, this is a guy who is just you know constantly looking at the world from the, the point of view of. If I hit that with this, what, what kind of sound would it make? And how can I put that into a piece of music? And nowhere is that more evident than in his percussion music from the early 30s. And um, I have a uh, wonderful disc here by Chicago-based ensemble Third Coast Percussion that features some of the greatest hits of uh, Cage's percussion music. And I'm fortunate enough also to have two of the members here on the show, Robert Dillon and David Skidmore. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah. Um, so tell us, what was the, um, I mean, obviously the centenary is coming, and uh, it's an important time. A lot of people are thinking about Cage. But when did you guys start thinking about doing a CD, and did you specifically time it for the centenary? Yeah, well, uh, you know, as percussionists, Cage's music is really central to our canon, to our repertoire. So uh, we've been playing music by Cage uh, pretty much since we started the group about seven years ago. So and kind of gradually been adding to our cage repertoire. I'm trying to think, at what point did we really start talking about releasing it as a, as a CD? Well, we, we knew, the, of course, the centenary was coming up. Cage was born in 1912. 2012 is the 100th anniversary of his birth, and, of course, that was sort of on our radar. Um, but it must have been, you know, a couple of years before that. Sometime in 2010, we started to, uh, to get really serious about the idea. We'd been playing Third Construction specifically, basically since the group was founded, and as we started to play more of Cage's music, we just realized we had a real connection to it. Mm -hmm. And you guys are you're a percussion quartet, so it's all percussion. Is this a relatively new model for an ensemble? I mean, how long have percussion groups been around, and, and how does that relate back to Cage? Well, that's convenient that you asked that, actually, because uh, <laughs> John Cage formed what I think is generally thought of as the first touring percussion ensemble mm -hmm. uh, in America, of like a classical percussion ensemble. So and that was in the... Uh, mid to late 1930s. As he was starting to compose music for percussion, he was asking a lot of other composers to write music for it. So the tradition really ties into him and to um, the work that he was doing back then and the, the compositions that are on the CD. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Why is Cage still important? What was the central, I guess, uh, tenet of his thinking that, that is so important today? Cage was basically uninterested in melody and harmony, which sets him apart from the entire lineage of Western classical music that, that led up to, to when he started working. Particularly when he was writing this percussion music, he was also an excellent writer of words, and, and much of his, of his writing at the time and his the speeches that he wrote and, and these, the lectures that he would give, he talked about um, how sound, for him, was the most important musical element. Mm -hmm. So you see Cage writing for instruments that were from that were culturally specific from all over the world so for instance tom toms which of course nowadays we think of rock and roll um but at the time these you know these were chinese instruments mm -hmm. he wrote for uh quijadas he wrote for a tepanaxtal and so there is this aspect of him sort of discovering sounds wherever he can find them mm -hmm. and finding ways to incorporate them into into his pieces and then you see that fascination with sound 
go on into his into his later works. So many of his later works, um, there are elements that are left to chance or elements that are indeterminate. And really the roots of that come from his percussion music yeah. because uh, there are these percussion instruments that um, are unpredictable. You don't mm, really yeah. know uh, right. how they're going to respond each time. Yeah, you're right, for five tin cans uh-huh. uh, without specifying any sort of pitch or sure. specificity of the color of the, the tin can. Or you what to strike them with. Or yeah, exactly, sure. yeah. It gives yeah. you a lot of different options in terms of what sounds might actually come out of that. Yeah, I think it's great with the percussion music that we stand kind of at the gateway of so much of his later philosophy, Yeah, you know, which is really great. Let's uh, play a little bit of the second construction. So tell us, it's a little bit different. There are three constructions by Cage. Tell us what we're going to hear in the second construction. Yeah, so the... Um, the thing that ties all three constructions together and the, the reason why they're called constructions is because they have a specific uh, structure to the way that he composed the piece. They each have uh, a certain number of sections, and then each section has that same number of measures. So for the first and second construction, they are each 16 sections of 16 measures. And then third construction is 24 sections of 24 measures each. Mm-hmm. Um, so second construction is uh, a lot different from third in instrumentation. Uh, he uses a prepared piano, which is something that he was just starting to sort of engineer around this time. In addition to that, he uses some of the culturally specific instruments David was talking about earlier, that same same sort of uh-huh. idea that he's using temple bowls in one of the parts. Uh, he uses a number of muted gongs, which are laid flat on a table. He also uses the water gong is something that I don't know if Cage invented, but definitely something he's... He did invent it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you take a, a small gong, and as you're rolling on the gong with, with the mallet, you lower it into mm-hmm. a bucket of water, which then also bends the pitch of that. Yeah, it's a great sound. Yeah, it's a really amazing <laughs> sound, and yeah, I think a testament to, to Cage's inventiveness mm-hmm. with very sort of limited resources at that time. He was, he was making some really spectacular, uh, amazing sounds. Well, let's have a listen to Third Coast Percussion perform the second construction by John Cage. Thank you. 
That was a track off of a new CD called Works for Percussion by Chicago-based Third Coast Percussion, Construction Number 2 by John Cage. And two of the members of Third Coast Percussion are my guests on Relevant Tones today. I'm sitting with David Skidmore and Robert Dillon. Thanks again, guys. Uh, What a fantastic piece. I I enjoyed listening to that so much. Um, We're going to move now to a movement of the quartet, the third movement. And, um, well, this is an interesting piece in general, but uh, there's some uh, confusion about whether the third movement is called axial asymmetry or axial symmetry. 
which um, I, I personally find very amusing because <laughs> it's you know, obviously a very different idea. Um, but we're going to go with axial asymmetry, I think, for the purposes of this show. Um, tell us a little bit about that movement. Sure. So the whole piece, Quartet, uh, which is from 1935, it's the very first piece that Cage wrote for percussion and one of his very earliest pieces for any instrument. Uh, the entire piece is... Um, is written for any percussion instruments. So in the score, Cage gives you rhythms, and uh, some of the notes that he writes are stems up, and some of the notes are stems down. Um, but there's no other indication of which percussion instruments to use. So for us, as a percussion ensemble, um, it was a real treat to p put the piece together, because we have this studio on Chicago's north side, and it's just full of fun toys. And so we got to really sort of sculpt the piece with all of our different instruments uh, to make it unique to us and, and to take advantage of this aspect of percussion, which is so open. How do you even start? I mean, does he give you any guidelines whatsoever, or is it just, I mean, completely, you know, did you want some warm sounds, some cold sounds? How, do, how did you uh, start? He gives you tempo markings, mm -hmm. which give you some idea. And, and uh, dynamic markings Dynamics, also. yeah. Uh, but we decided um, one, one thing that comes up in percussion music a lot is that there are many of our instruments that are made of wood, mm -hmm. many that are made of metal, many that are uh, like with a skin, a drum head. So three of the movements, we, uh, we use those basic parameters. So the first movement is almost entirely wooden instruments. The second movement is entirely metal instruments, and the final movement is entirely drums, uh, which incidentally is the way that Cage used to tour the piece. He used okay. to close concerts with his own percussion group on mm -hmm. the West Coast when they would tour with the last movement of quartet on all drums. Um, but for the third movement, which is the one we're going to hear, uh, we wanted to do something uh, a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So um, we sort of have our own take on, on the prepared piano, one of Cage's most famous inventions. We took uh, an upright piano, and busted it apart with an axe. In, in one fell blow? Or <laughs> <laughs> That's how the story goes. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Rob, in one mighty blow, <laughs> sundered the piano. It was, it was mostly clay. Clay found okay. the piano. He's the angriest one of, of yeah, the Yeah, well, he's the most um, uh, <laughs> handy. Yeah, creative, <laughs> that's a good word. Um, but it was actually really, really difficult. <laughs> I, I can imagine, yeah. We sawed apart, you know, we sawed apart the frame and, and basically removed the, the harp of the piano. Okay. And that's what we perform on. And we scrape it with knives. Uh, we hit it with hammers. We scrape it with a coin at one point. Um, so you just had this piano open. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's innards open to the world. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, basically a big... Uh, rectangular box that's about six to eight inches deep, mm -hmm. um, and then all the strings are just there on top of it. So we lay it flat like a table. It's almost like a sort of uh, bizarro hammer dulcimer or something. Right, so all, right, all the strings are right. open there and uh, sort of crisscrossing because it's an upright piano, so okay. everything's you know uh, to save space is laid out that way. Yeah, and then we, we play on the strings. We play on the actual box. You get a really deep, resonant kind of sound out yeah, of that. Yeah, the actual. soundboard is still intact, so there's a sure. natural resonance to the instrument, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. And then scraping, we set some things on top of the strings uh, and and strike those, and it creates a really interesting sound, a combination of, uh, like, we use a couple of crotali pitches, these little tuned metal discs, mm -hmm. um, have a couple of those laying on top of the piano, and a... Uh, metal bowl that's been turned upside down and so you get kind of a combination of the original sound of the instrument as well as sort of buzzing of that against the strings um, and then yeah sort of uh, rubbing along the strings with metal objects and um, 
sort of I, I do a little glissando along the strings with a, a knitting needle. So there's a whole kind of candy store full of possible <laughs> sounds that we get to explore uh, just with this this one very bizarre, very heavy instrument. Great. Uh, let's have a listen.
We just heard Axial Asymmetry, the third movement of Quartet, which was the first percussion piece that John Cage wrote, performed for us by Third Coast Percussion, my guest today on Relevant Tones. Um, And we're talking a lot and featuring tracks from your new CD, Works for Percussion. The disc is available on iTunes and Amazon and also on Third Coast's website, which is thirdcoastpercussion.com, and that's all spelled out. And we also have a video on our website, relevanttones.com, because the CD has a companion DVD, so you can see videos of these great works. There's uh, definitely a theatricality inherent in this music, and so I think it's a great idea (laughs) to show people what's going on. Of course, for me, I wish I had uh, you guys tearing up that piano (laughs) on the DVD. (laughs) Maybe a future. (laughs) The next reissue. That's right. Additional features. features. The four of you wearing welding masks and beating the tar out of this piano, I think would make a great YouTube video. Well, let's talk about the third construction now, uh, which is, you know, the the big one. What will we hear in that piece? Well, the piece is, uh, in terms of instrumentation, the most complex, I guess, on on the CD. Each of the players has a number of different instruments, and throughout the work, um... Each player is constantly jumping from one instrument to the next, uh, which creates this really cool interweaving of all these different sounds. It definitely sounds like way more than four people playing it, <laughs> like if you're not watching it. Um, but we each have uh, three tom-toms. We each have five tin cans. And then we each have some form of shaker. And then there's a few special instruments, like uh, Cage specifies a tepanaxtel, uh, which is basically a log drum, a hollowed-out log uh, with a kind of a low, deep wooden sound. And then maybe the most famous uh, instrument in the piece is the conch shell, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, It's Mm -hmm. a seashell, but there's a small hole bored on the very end of it, and uh, using an embouchure, just like a trumpet player would use, you play the rhythms Mm -hmm. that Cage specifies on the conch shell, and and that's uh, a sort of a real climactic moment in the piece. Pete is a conch shell virtuoso. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love the idea, too, of just the, uh, the, the sheer inventiveness of the instruments that Cage is using. And I just think of him, you know, in, in, in Seattle and Santa Monica and along the West Coast, I don't know, on, on the beach, finding the perfect conch shell or, <laughs> or, or the, the, you know, the perfect drum, the perfect this, the perfect sounds for, for a lot of these things. And then, of course, knowing that, that uh, no future group will find the same things that he found, and that's okay. <laughs> it's just a fantastic aesthetic. Yeah, many of his, many of the later performances of this piece are many of his works um, he heard and, and um, it seems at least from the from the research that we've done that I- any performance that was done uh, with the correct intentions in mind and like a, a sort of dedication to finding great sounds which was such a passion of cages he would be he'd be into it he was very excited uh, in other words by the idea that not every performance would be exactly the same that there would be no definitive performance of this work or of any of his works but that there was uh, an openness and a possibility for many different versions of of the piece to exist Mm -hmm. well let's have a listen to your version (laughs) third construction by john cage
That was Peter Martin on the conch shell, the third construction of John Cage uh, performed by Third Coast Percussion, who has been my guest today on Relevant Tones. And I just want to plug the CD one more time because it's really wonderful. It's called uh, Works for Percussion. It's actually called Works for Percussion 2 because it's part of a series that Mode Records is doing. Um, But for you guys, it's the first disc that you've done. And uh, it's just a fantastic disc. It's got all the, uh, the, the big percussion hits, the three constructions, quartet, trio, and living room music. There's also a companion DVD. It's available on iTunes, Amazon, and thirdcoastpercussion.com. Guys, thanks so much for being my guest today and talking to me about John Cage. Oh, thanks a lot. It's a real, real pleasure. Thanks for having us. Relevant Tones is produced by Jesse McWhorters at WFMT, with special thanks to Molly Hunt and Connor Mackey. For more information about the program and the artists we featured, you can find us on Facebook or visit our website at relevanttones.com. Relevant Tones is made possible by the generous support of Grosvenor Capital Management, Carol Joins, and Abby O'Neill, an anonymous donor and the listener supporters of WFMT. I'm your host, Seth Bosted, and thank you very much for listening.